This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Galaxies we hear, Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. I am one of your co-hosts, Carrie Borkowski, and I'm here again. Yay! Uh, episode two with S. Swihart. S. Welcome. Hi. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I should have said welcome back. So for folks who are just tuning in, um, Brianne and I had wrapped season four and a couple of summers ago, I did a series of summer shorts. And so S and I have been working together and chatting. And one day we sort of said, gosh, we should be recording some of these great conversations. And so here we are. We are recording some of these conversations. And in particular, S is a current doctoral student researcher in all things self-worth. And as you probably can guess, and if you haven't listened to our first conversation, please go back and listen to it. It's posted now. We're just exploring, not just, we are exploring this complicated construct of self-worth with sort of weaving in, I guess, belonging as well, right, S, I would say, fair to say. They go together for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so last time, as I said, go back and listen because S S did such a great job of offering some definitions, some ideas about what this word means. And so today, um, before we hit record, we said, well, we'll just, we'll see where it goes. And that's sort of what we have agreed to is that we're going to feel our way through. We have a soft agenda, a, my, a, a malleable agenda, I'd say, um, which I'm, I'm, uh, I favor these days. So I think S, I don't know. I feel like I want to start with, cause our accountability for the group last week was to do some noticing around when you feel like you're in your self-worth, right? So like, I think, which is in very good S and carry fashion, we're going to come from a point of strength, right? We're not going to think about what we don't have. And so along those lines, I, I guess I have two questions for you. As one, did you do the homework? And if so, what did you notice? And then secondly, if you could talk from your research, from your experience as a teacher and a mom, sort of from a like 10,000 foot view when we say we're in our self-worth. So sort of first like zoom in personally, what did it look like? And then zoom out. What does that mean? Sort of, I don't know, uni universally is not the right word, but hopefully you know what I mean by like, what does it mean more generally? Sure. I, I did do the homework. Um, and I was, um, I was really trying to focus for, um, I sometimes 
um, I'm working on being more and more connected with my, with my body. Um, I'm often very much in my head and in my heart too, I think, but, um, I'm working on that. So I was really thinking about what does it feel like in my body when I'm in my self-worth? Um, so for me, some of the things I feel, um, pretty steady in my stomach and I feel like my throat is open. That's a huge thing mm. for me. And I'm not, if I'm feeling, um, not in my worth, or if I have some insecurity popping up, my throat closes typically. So, and it's, uh, sometimes it's frustrating, right? You're trying to move through and you really yeah. are like you're trying to will this open, but That's it's so actually, yeah, it opens up more when I'm, when I'm so feeling is that, I need to understand that more. So the, cl- so it's a closing yeah, it feels like I'm um, like it's tight or like I don't have access to my full range or my register goes up a little bit um, or it's shaky, maybe a little bit. So it's voice. It's voice related, not breath related. I would. Yeah, I think it's more voice related. There might be. See, and now you're making me think about my breath and I hadn't done that yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there may be a little bit more of a, a, a tightening or quickening of the breath, too, that goes along with that. Yeah, that, that's that feels, so interesting. Makes a lot of sense. Mm. Um so I think in moments, right, where I feel, I, I correlate that with moments I feel at ease. And one thing that popped up for me were, was just when I'm in a space with people that I feel I can be my total self with, that I'm I'm able to have um, that sense of ease, that sense of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm speaking about a subject that I really love, um, mm-hmm. that, those are moments I, can, I feel often vary in my worth. Or when I'm grounded in something you know, for me, teaching and education is something I feel I know well, I've done a long time. That's an area I feel, you know, confident. But if we're talking about geopolitics, maybe not so much. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Definitely not. <laughs> so it's interesting. I, I can't help but wonder, S, because um, we've talked about this a little bit in other conversations. It's so important yes, to notice your body. And I'm, and I'm gonna, I, I told you before I warned you that I, ha- I had added some topics to the, to the sheet. So we're going to get into this embodiment idea later. So I'm glad you're bringing it up. So yes, noticing the question that came up for me S is what is your body trying to tell you in that moment that your, your throat or your voice is is tightening, right? Like I wonder, like it's, I don't know. I I didn't. I, if you had asked me five years ago what my body's trying to tell me, I would have rolled my eyes at you and been like, "Just get away from me. You're too woo woo." Like, legitimately, I would have felt that way. And recently, I have had a real change of heart and soul around like listening to the body. So, what do you think? I mean, what do you think your body's trying to tell you in that moment? My um, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm not a neuroscience expert, but my best guess from what I know through research is that it's trying to tell me that I'm in danger. And I think that that is however I'm interpreting a risk, right? So um, if I'm feeling like I'm showing up in a moment and I might be rejected in an area that I, I'm worried about being rejected in, which is shaky. And we know that rejection is attached to that going back to last time we talked about yeah. That sense of belonging, right? Like on a primal level, we really need to be a part of a group to survive. We need acceptance to survive. I think there is a a deep biological need to to show up and not be rejected in any of the cultural stories that we have internalized that say, you should be this. If I'm worried, I'm not that, or I won't be perceived that way because I'm looking to that external place for validation versus having that internal place of validation then I'm immediately, even subconsciously or in that limbic area, I'm feeling like I'm in danger. Mm. So the body starts to protect. And so it starts to guard. Um, 
I think that that's, I think that that's what, why, why that happens. Yeah. 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 I love that. I think that, I think that's true. And it does relate to what we talked about. Um, yeah, I feel like I need to marinate on this. Like after (laughs) it it like follows me after our conversation that I think about it, I will share. And then I want to, I want to get back to this, what it means to be in our self-worth. I also sort of, I've just been practicing more paying attention, right. To noticing when I'm not feeling in my self-worth and when I am. And it's interesting that you mentioned sort of this idea of constriction, my word, um, I thought similarly, not of a a particular place in my body, but I know when I'm in my self-worth, when I feel almost like a light or a fullness in my body, like not full, like after eating, but just like filled up with something, right? Like it's like an energy, a light. I don't know what the right word. I feel like words often fail us when we're trying to describe that feeling, Um, but like what, when I'm teaching, when I'm podcasting, when I'm riding my bike, it's like, it's just like a flow. Right. Um, I love that. Yeah. And and electric almost. Yeah. And it's interesting because I feel like it's so related and we could probably riff on this for hours to this notion of constriction. Right. Cause like when we're not feeling, it's like, cause I know when I'm in places where I'm not feeling in my self-worth, I tend to like, I'm thinking of like old school dinner parties or cocktail hours, I would like find a corner, right? And just like sip on my whatever and with my head down in a corner because I'm just not, those aren't my like places I love to be. Um, so it's interesting that notion, I'm just thinking about sort of the the fullness and the constriction, right? Whether it's in your throat or in your body, like I wonder if there's, there's something there, there, right? Um, I, I love that. And I think it's interesting, the idea of bringing up like a, like a cocktail party or a reception or some type of social event that is feels almost like it had a business or um, social past our core social circle, because those are typically places of protocol, right? There are yeah. certain ways of mm. being that we're expected to be, and we're all hyper aware of whether or not we're following protocol, which is immediately a compliance thing. It's there's going to be fear associated when we're in compliance, right? So that's just such an interesting yeah. example. That's true. And that's very I true. Love, I love that word flow state because mm. I think or flow, because when we, we talk about flow state, there's some research that suggests that we actually can't enter into creative flow when we're when we're not able to feel vulnerable, right? Which is going to be connected to that sense of yeah. of worth. So mm. That's very cool. So being in your self-worth, if you're describing this idea to someone who, unlike you and I, has not bought into all of this, that are still really in their head, perhaps, around these things, we have language, right? That's really what we have most of the time, even though we could make a big case for why there's so much more going on non-linguistically, right? So if you're explaining being in your self-worth with the language we have, what do you say to folks? Sometimes that depends on the folks we're talking to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So maybe students, take students first since you're like in a classroom with students or, or you pick, you can pick. I mean, you know, students are an easy sell most of the time because Mm. they're 
or buy it, they buy in really easily because they're, they're there, they get it. They're walking around. They have a lot to say, right. About feeling like themselves versus feeling like they have to be this mm. other person. And they're spending a lot of their school day, right. And in a state of, of compliance, right. Um, which has some purpose, but also, yeah. um, and that I think those wheels of compliance are they're doing that at home with their parents that they're, they're doing it with their peer groups and then they're doing it with the educational system around around them and if they're older and they have a part-time job then they're in the workforce doing it. Yes. <laughs> Just we're prepping them. So um, I think that they're very eager I find they're very eager to talk about um and they're actually very hungry to have those conversations around where they feel steady versus where they feel a little shaky. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I th- and I think that's, and they're also, if you talk to them about the brain and the limbic system, I think that I, I always think science, whoever you're talking to is first, our view culturally is that science is, is reliable and anything philosophical is subject to whatever. And that's not without some value. Um, mm-hmm. I like that self-worth can really be tied to the brain and that we can see right when we are feeling under threat in some way, mm-hmm. how that shuts down the prefrontal cortex or how that operates. So science is a good place to start neuroscience, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but look at this image of this brain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then from there, I think everybody had, you know, we all know what it's like. I think anytime we're, we're getting people to to reflect on their own personal mm-hmm. experience. We all know what it's like to show up in a space where we're feeling anxious about the way we're presenting or we're feeling, um, we're comparing ourselves. We're in that, you know, the sin of comparison and we're mm-hmm. looking at other people and finding ourselves lacking or or we're looking externally to see if we're hitting the mark versus being able to come up with that criteria inside ourselves for what's good for us. Mm-hmm. So I think once you get people thinking about their own life. Um, they might not like that word, but I think they can all identify with the experience. Yeah. It's so interesting that oh, I was just listening to you. Well, curious about, and it makes sense that students are open to these conversations and yet we are crushing that openness with lots of compliance. That's a, another conversation I imagine. The thing that I'm sort of noodling over is, is it a worthy endeavor to even define what it means to be in your self-worth because it's so personal, right? And it makes me wonder, you know, I've talked on this podcast and in my writing how important I think it is to name your core values. And I'm also wondering if sort of to level set, it's also important to do that accountability homework we offered in our first episode, which was what does it feel like to be in your self-worth? What is your, cause like for me, it is flow. I've, I've said for many years, even before I had the language around the conversation we're having today, I used to say things like, it just lights me up. I, I didn't, I didn't know any other way to say it, but like for you, it was through your voice and your breath and for others, it's going to be different. And so, yeah, it's just interesting, like to think about how do you guide and support people in identifying their own in, in, I'm using air quotes in the self-worth, right? I I think the idea of the, um, the physical aspect is a beautiful way, right? And everybody has a different, um, I mean, we're all so different, right? The way that we enter into something is so wildly different than another person. So I, any of those reflective moments where we can consider whether it's an intellectual exercise, whether it's a somatic exercise, no matter like, 
whether it's a conversation with somebody else, yeah. I think all of those are worthwhile. It's the practice, right. Of asking yeah. these questions. And sometimes, you know, I, I feel like I've been doing my own personal self-worth work for many years now, and I'll find my way into something um, that I hadn't even considered because it's just so part of my furniture. Right. I was, mm-hmm. uh, I was talking with a girlfriend this weekend about um, body issue stuff as women. And while I know that that's a thing that is confronted as a woman, I, when I really started digging into it, I was like, Oh, I have some serious, I have some serious old programming and it's so normalized. It's mm-hmm. in fact, feeling bad about body stuff as a woman, because she even said, well, don't all women just feel that way? Mm. I was like, wow, right. But so then we feel that way. And then we just accept that we feel that way. And, and then the question became, I think I'd always looked at it from a paradigm I had been given from a, as long as I can remember as a young girl, which is that my body image issues will cease when my body changes. But the truth is, is that, but then I thought, well, what if my body doesn't change at all in any direction? And what if I can move that needle? Yeah, I've never even considered that as a possibility. So I just use that as an example to say, sometimes there's sneaky little areas. And even if they're right in our face, they're so part of our furniture that we just don't even recognize. So they are. I love that the metaphor, the uh, part of the furniture, because I was reading a book that I'm going to share with you in a second. And, and I, and I'd heard it before. I can't even remember the person who did it, but they talk about the, the fish asking the fish about how the water is today. And they're like, what water, right? Cause they've been in it for so long. And that's what you were describing. Made me, made me think of that. <clears throat> and I'm so glad you brought up the, the body image stuff because I'm reading this book, the wisdom of your body, Hillary McBride. <clears throat> so she is a trained psychologist. I don't even know. I think it's psychologist. Yeah. She's a registered psychologist, speaker, writer, and she does private counseling and she suffered with her own um, eating disorder from a really young age. And the, 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 the whole book I've like, you probably can't see it, but I've like basically dog-eared, like I feel like every other page (laughs) and it's all about embodiment. And like getting out of your your head and into your body, right? And so I was like, oh, this book is coming at such a good time because S and I are getting ready to have this conversation. And she says, I just wanted to share a few things that she says. So very early on in the book, and I knew you'd love this because you love story. She talks about, she describes embodiment as a most the most comprehensive non-linguistic autobiography. Oh, right. Like that's speaking to you, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, It's also making me recognize how much I'm not aware of that autobiography and I need to get in touch. Right. That, that all of us. And she said, and she offers a definition of embodiment just so we can get on the same page. Um, and it's an author page 19 of the book, um, a perceptual experience of engagement of the body in the world. Wow. Right. And she really does explore in this. And then I was listening to a podcast this morning. Remember, we talked about how the universe brings you stuff over and over again, how language just continues to fail us. And she talks about the senses. And so it it, it brought me back as to self-worth and what she talks about, particularly, and you brought up the, the eating piece is the 
the terrible irony of something like whether it's an eating disorder or some other disorder, right? Like that we perceive as being a disordered behavior. Once you get into this game of ideals, Mm. she calls, she calls self-worth conditional self-worth. Because it's based on that ideal. Because it's based on that ideal. That's, that is, that's a powerful way to, to explain that concept. And we, that to me is that comparative aspect, right? If it's about all of the images that you see, if you're, if you are, um, whatever it is from a childhood up images of what bodies should look like images of what relationships should look like images of what success looks like, right. Those become the ideals with which we condition our self-worth. I love that. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was really interesting. And this is what I wanted to explore with you. And I think it's related to, because we had we had said we were going to touch on things like boundaries, feedback, system, account. So it's all, it's all related and we'll get there. What I find so interesting is that, you know, you know, because you're an educator, in education especially, we talk in binaries, right? It's either you're, you either have it or you lack it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and with self-worth, we've been talking about being in your self-worth. And I'm imagining as people are listening, and I even thought of it, the knee jerk is, well, when am I out of my self-worth, the binary? And I actually, after reading part of this book, I actually think it's you're either in your self-worth or you're in your conditional self-worth. That's beautiful. Right? And, and and that's such a and and just in terms of language and the power of language, right? That's a that's a beautiful way to um not almost not pathologize what's going on too, right? Because right. It, I know I shared with you, I think when we were doing coaching, there I had one of my big, you know, an epiphany, one of those big moments that hits you was this idea of I was on a loop without recognizing a loop that I should be more advanced than mm. I am because of the the positivity work, right? Like you have that kind of toxic positivity that people talk about now. Yep. The idea of um, the danger of framing self-worth as something that you should have. And then if you find places where you are lacking self-worth or it's conditional self-worth, you feel then it makes you feel worse, right? And you right. Right. In that loop of not being able to breach into actually doing the work because there's so much negative self-talk there. Right. Uh, that phrasing, I think, helps counter some of that, which is such an important, it's an important piece, right? Not to not to berate the self for not being farther along is really counter to the work. Right. right. And what is farther along, right? Yeah, you exactly. you you be, I mean, it's so interesting what this book has offered is an invitation to think about the fact that like your self-worth is just acknowledging that your body is what your body is. And there's, there is no competition here. It's our story. It's our story and, and all parts of our lives. Right. I mean, that really, where, and that we are really worthy of love and that we Mm. are. And I I find that too, you know, those areas of our life where the people who love us best can see it and we don't yet right? Mm -hmm. Those are such wonderful. And that might be a great question, right? Where are the areas of your life or the people who know and love you the best Mm. would counter the narrative that you have a hard time letting go of, right? Or that condition that you have a hard time letting go of. Yeah. So I'm wondering in your, I mean, I think this is related to the belonging stuff and the self-worth stuff and what Brianne and I are seeing in the belonging work. And I went for a long bike ride this morning and 
this is an aside and I promise I'll get back. I have been working with a, a coach who does a lot of work around embodiment. And what I what I find really important in my world right now is is writing and creating. I'm not by nature, I don't think I'm a creative person in the sense of like what society says, like art, music and dance. I like to write. And I was having trouble fitting writing into my day in a way that felt creative. And what she said to me is, well, you exercise almost every day. What's why couldn't writing be like an additional, right? Like a mental fitness. And so I noticed that when I come back from riding or running, I'm in like a flow state and I'm able to write, right? So so I went for a, a ride this morning and I was thinking a lot about um, embodiment and just sort of the belonging and the self-worth. And I'm wondering what, what we haven't found in the belonging research is anyone talking about this, like belonging and embodiment and sort of where the, right. It's all cognitive. It's like, do this, you, you, you know, I mean, you're in a doctoral program where part of the work has been interventions, right? It's always like a PD or a strategy or a proposal. And so I'm curious before I offer my notions of this, what are you seeing in the self-worth research? I mean, are they talking, are authors talking about embodiment? Well, I think you'd have to just, you, you would have to divide the self-worth research a bit into mm. Um, scholarship and what the academy is doing okay versus <laughs> what's out in the culture I mean really yeah, right yeah and that I mean that we talked we've talked before the beautiful the beautiful thing about Brene Brown is that she's able to sort of come yeah. from a scholarship background and then bring that out to the community and even in um Atlas of the Heart right she notes in there like I am making a conscious choice to pull this away from this sort of way you present high scholarship because that is um that is not it. so so that's my I would I would make that distinction which is interesting right mm -hmm. and also feels con like a conditional um yeah you have to you have to you have to comply with certain guidelines to fit into one area and be seen as scholarly enough mm. um, so that's one um, but I would say I would say that is probably more typically found in in the not scholarship oriented <laughs> self-worth work, though I, though it shows up a bit in terms of conversations around peer groups. Um, mm -hmm. and in terms of, if I'm thinking about, um, academic scholarship relationship, like teacher student relationship, right. Mm -hmm. If I'm looking at self-worth in schools, then teacher student relationship, parenting and peer groups all play massive roles in, you know, in the development of self-worth, yeah. um, so when you say the academy, you're talking about like journal publications and things of that nature that it's not showing up. Not, I wouldn't say as explicitly, right? That yeah. word is probably not going to be linked. Mm. It would, I would have to make a connection to something like, well, belonging is certainly part of peer relationships. So there's yeah. probably a line there, right? Yeah. Um, but that language isn't showing up. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I, I think it's, it's heavily tied, right? I mean, definitely when you look at, we talked a bit about attachment theory last time. And mm -hmm. so when you look at the idea of attachment theory and self-worth um, in connection with that, belonging is rooted in that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It's so interesting. That, it's interesting. And I don't know this literature. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a leap. Um, I think having been in the academy for quite a while that um, the academy often, because it's more interesting, writes at the extremes, 
right? And what I mean by that is I think embodiment around self-worth doesn't show up in the academy often unless there's been some severe trauma. So like in the medical journals, or I'm thinking of like psychological journals or trauma-informed care, right? So like if, 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 if being, if you're not, I'm not going to say not in self-worth, but if you're struggling in the areas of self-worth, confidence, good enough, and it's a result of an obvious capital T trauma, mm -hmm. then I think it does show up in the academy because I feel like researchers are interested in the, the results of that uh, capital T trauma, right? Would you, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And I apologize. I, I conflated that with belonging, but the, um, but with, in terms of embodiment, I, I would completely agree. And I would say embodiment. I don't see embodiment. I haven't seen much embodiment in the research Yeah, in terms of self-worth at all. Yeah. So, um, yeah. trauma would be right. Cause if you're thinking about PTSD or if you're yep. thinking, right, then it, then those things would show up. And even then, I don't know if it would be embodiment might show up that way, but I don't know how often it would be linked specifically to the concept of self-worth. Yeah. Well, that's true too. I hadn't thought about that. So it's, it's, yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. Cause I think, so Brian and I are in the, in the midst of coding. I think I mentioned last time coding seasons, um, three and four of our podcast for, um, some research we're doing around belonging and what has come up for us in so many episodes is something we're calling the five senses of belonging. Right. So that people when we ask people about their definition of belonging and how do they know when they feel like they belong, they're not giving us words for the sake of words. They're giving us adjectives. Mm. Right. Or nouns that represent feelings in the body. Like I feel a flow. I feel it in my gut. It's a resonance. Um, it's a smell, it's a feel, right? Like it's so wild how many different people, and these are all people independent, right? Like we're not, they don't know each other. They haven't been talking about the podcast and they're coming to this podcast and telling us about these different senses that they have. So I think it's terribly interesting and curious. And again, as I get further and further into this book, it's a no wonder we struggle. And you and I talked about this last podcast and other conversations. It's no wonder we struggle with hard conversations around DEI and belonging and self-worth. I think we need to be spending more time, not with the language and the doing, but like being in our bodies, right? And if you think about that in terms of education, right? How we really do disembody. We, we put kids through a disembodying process, right? Yeah. There's so much research that suggests that kids all the way up through need to be learning and moving more. We probably need to be moving more, right. Yep. As we go through our day, um, yeah, absolutely. in our work, but we, we just, we have, we don't have that model and it's, we don't, just challenging to turn. So, I mean, thinking about that too, right. And even from there too, how many, you know, I know my daughter um, is, and, you know, I don't know how much of it's innate, you know, certainly you try to say, be respectful, but she, she will take that to the extreme at school. She is, you know, her teacher will say she's an angel. And I say, Oh, 
Well, when she gets home, <laughs> all of that comes out and yep. she's an angel and she's wonderful and she's an angel, but mm-hmm. she, she somewhere picked up, right. Um, just through that sensing that young kids do from kindergarten on pre pre K on that she needed to follow the rules. I mean, I'm a recovering rule follower and she is, she'll be like, mom, you can't, you know, don't walk over there. It's, there's a sign. And so <laughs> it's okay. And so, yeah. but she'll come home because that disembodied experience of being able to, to experience what's happening throughout her day in all areas. And man, like it comes way yeah. out when she gets home. And I know that that is a, a similar experience for many parents and I just yeah. wish we we could do more, right? To get kids just in their body, never mind thinking about what their body is telling them yeah. as they go through moments. Yeah, it's funny because even that word angel for the teacher to say, not to say that your daughter is not. Um, I'm I'm sure she's a kind, wonderful soul. I wonder though, when the teacher said angel, mm-hmm. I feel like the socially constructed definition of angel is she follows all the rules that we ask her to follow at school. Right. So she doesn't ruffle any feathers, right? Ruffle any feathers. Yeah. So I'm curious S, cause something that came up for me this morning. So we seem to be in agreement around this idea of embodiment. We seem to be in agreement that these, a lot of the systems that we have in place are disembodying our kids that we need more movement. So as a doctoral student, in the midst of research on self-worth and a teacher of is a high, high school, right? High school, high school teacher. I don't, I mean, I don't want to focus on the doing, but at the end of the day, the reality is like, what, how do you walk through the world as a teacher, soon to be Dr. Swihart, knowing what you know about the educational system? Like, what do you, what do you do to invite students and, and colleagues into this space and support them in their own journey? I know that's a big question. So I'm just curious, like, what are you, what are you thinking about these days? What's on your mind around that topic? Well, I, I think in some ways um, I've been encouraged. I feel like there is a trend that is moving more in these spaces, right? Um, Trauma informed teaching has become Mm. a huge um, necessary focus, right? Um, the SEL work, which now is, you know, that was big for a while mm-hmm. now, it's very much under attack in many states. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I was, I've been hopeful. Um, we are facing a time where it's so important to do that work, but, but harder place to place, depending on where you're at. And, and I might say that there's probably nowhere that doesn't have some of that backlash. Um, yeah. But some places I think are much more open than than others. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, yeah, you're in a, you're in a tough spot. So I think Massachusetts where I am, even with some naysayers, there's a lot more opportunities for that kind of work for sure. But I think having those conversations, you know, I, though it's not, um, it's not nebulous. I, you know, I think that, um, I, I, again, I often will fall back onto brain science and, mm-hmm and move from a place of trying to say, you know, when the prefrontal cortex is shut down, when we're dysregulated, we, when we don't feel safe, we are not as able to learn. So we can't touch the, the gaps that we want to fill in, Mm. in learning without touching self-regulation, without touching what it means to feel safe. And as soon as we're having those conversations, we also have to make 
young people aware of what that means, right? How yeah. do you know when you're regulated or dysregulated? How do teachers know how to engage with the student, right? There are so many practices that um, that are older that that many of us have that make sense in our brains. But when you just learn the science behind what the, how that's actually just the way a tone of voice, um, how tone of voice and facial features can signal nonverbal cues that will, you know, get the limbic system engaged. Yeah. Um, those are, I think I start with those types of conversations and then try to filter it in. Um, but it really is just trying to raise awareness. I think people don't, don't understand. Um, so, I mean, that's probably where I would start with colleagues. And then I, 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 I definitely incorporate, I incorporate brain science, um, into my classrooms. I especially also, like, I like to talk to students about testing anxiety, mm. which is often linked to self-worth issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that if you are right, if you're, if you are doing that, com- that conditional self-worth, right? Which means I have to get an A or a high score on this exam. Otherwise I'm not as much as I am, you know, otherwise then you're walking into an environment where there's that risk. If you get that testing anxiety, the limbic system engages, the prefrontal cortex can start to drop, functional IQ can start to drop. You know, you might not even, you might have all the information and not even be able to access it. Mm-hmm. And I've had students say, oh my gosh, I've done, like, that's me. Like I sat down, I knew yeah. everything and I couldn't remember any of it. And it's like, well, how stressed were you when you sat down to take that test? Yeah. And then to have those conversations, well, what are we really measuring? What's our goal here with the way we assess, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's, it's such a big question because for me, if you, if you run an exercise of looking at all the things we do in education through a lens of self-worth, you you would probably be tasked with adjusting so many. <laughs> yeah, almost everything, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think similarly with belonging, the the piece that I grapple with, I can't speak for Brienne, but I imagine that we grapple with it together is we, whenever we sort of have these discoveries around self-worth and belonging, like, like we're talking about, and I don't mean discovery, like we're the first to to say this, I'm not saying that, but like when we come to this realization of where we are, what the experience is and where we would like hope to shift perceptions, I think we run the risk of creating the next PD mm-hmm. that it's a doing thing. Right. And so what I'm grappling with is, what does it look like to create this work and invite this work and invite people without it feeling like a checklist? Right. Cause if, because if we, like, I hear what you're saying, like I, I have been in those spaces just as you have, where you've got to bring the brain science, the science, the something to get them interested. I just wonder when do we get to a point where what we're saying without the science is worthy, right? <laughs> like, because it's just true. Like, <laughs> I mean, gosh, for all the things that were true, I could get people. Yeah, I know. Different <laughs> world. The um, the um, I mean, really, you know, I think we talked about that last last time too. But it really is about. It comes down to belief, and belief mm-hmm. is just. It is. You, you know, it, we, it comes from the narratives that we see. I really think it's, I believe, I believe there's my belief that it's firmly attached to that. And, yeah. and it is very difficult to unearth where it comes from and to, to break it apart. So 
you know, if you're sitting with a veteran teacher who is loves their kids, loves their job, and they've been doing things the way they've done, and they think that they are great at their job, and they are, it's not a matter of that, mm-hmm. asking them to to change those beliefs, right? Or to examine that because you have, how do you, it's, so the question becomes, how do you change belief? Right. Yeah. Which is just, it's not going to be done in just any PD. And in fact, no. I think those, some PDs have the the opposite effect. I've sat through many PDs where I've come out feeling very insulted. Yep. At the, at the end of the and day. you double down on what you were doing before because of some, what somebody just told you, right? Yeah. <laughs> the kids do that too. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Y- you know, I th- what I have learned over the years with students, and I think I I had the best, I don't know what the right, I feel like what I did this summer with a class was not that it was successful. I felt like it was resonant for all of us. And I think it's it's focusing on systems and processes, right? It's not at the end of tonight, you'll have done X or that you will have learned Y. It's for me, my approach these days is all I can do is invite you. In my work, I've collaborated directly with hundreds of educators to support their success. Do you know which of their ed tech frustrations comes up time and again? The sheer number of tools out there and the difficulty of knowing which ones schools like theirs are using to get results. IXL is different. Not only does it perform the functions of dozens of tools, It's currently delivering results for one in four U.S. students, including those in 95 of the top 100 districts. Another major pain point that comes up when a school is excited to implement a new tool only to find out the teachers hate it. Yikes. It helps to know that IXL is loved and trusted by more than one million teachers, saving them time on prep work while enabling them to better support student learning. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments. And independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com forward slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com forward slash BE. And so I am very intentional when I run a PD, when I run a class, is I really do, and I'm sure people think I'm weird at first until they get used to it. I invite them to try something. I invite them to consider, right? And I think the best we can do is create space and moments and invitations to to try a different process or to adopt a temporary system. I mean, just the thing we did last episode, right? Which was to just notice when you feel like you're in your self-worth. I'm just inviting you to to do an experiment, right? And this whole notion of like, I don't know, you're a teacher and you've experienced this way more than I do, but like, I feel like teachers have PDs just shoved down their throats and it's so, whether it's tech, whether it's strength space, whether it's SEL, whether it's, I mean, I mean, there's so many, you know, reading curriculum, math curriculum, um, all the things. I just, I don't know how you folks do it, to be honest. 
Oh, and I, and I mean, I don't want to move into another conversation. I feel, you know, I think that there isn't, there is a worthiness in asking the professionals in the room the same way, checking in with the students in the room, Mm -hmm. what would be good for them, right? Or engaging in that process. And maybe that goes to what you're saying. You can ask people to come and show up and to offer what they will. I I think that learning is always most at its most transformative and effective when you are making a personal connection, right? When you see the value, you know, if a student's like asking that, that age old question, when am I going to use this? You know, why do I have to learn this one? You should be able to answer that question. Like that's not because I told you. (laughs) And, but truly, right. I mean, yeah, that's a cue to me that a student doesn't know why we're doing what we're doing. And if I, and part of my job is to help make that meaningful um, to them and to help, you know, to, to help them find that connection. And it doesn't always work, you know, but sometimes you're confronting those stories. If I have a student that thinks this class is stupid, I'm never going to use it. And I'm bad at it anyway. My work is much harder than (laughs) with a student who, who's able to, um, to find value or make a connection or see that value. Yeah. I think, you know, that when we talk about, I, I know, um, identity work, right. Is always most powerful when we start from that I place. And so I think two people showing up vulnerably, I don't know everything about self-worth. I'm, I don't have self-worth in every area of my life. I have conditional self-worth in, in places that I'm absolutely um, exploring and working through. You know, you try to make, invite that. It's like, I've done research in this area, but I'm an expert as much as I am. And yeah. I'm growing and learning too. Um, and I learn something new from people every day about it, right. That I have known too. So when you when you can invite people in to share where they're from, what their experience is to, to bring themselves to it. That's always the most powerful, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm trying to piece together for folks who listen. Cause I know audience members appreciate, you know, look, the reality is it would be nice to have implementable strategy strategies, right? Like I can't get away from that part of the system. And what I'm hearing you say are things like, um, you know, coming as a learner, right? More curiosity. Um, I heard a lot about role modeling, right? If you can't convince that um, senior, very experienced teacher to change their beliefs, then maybe all the best you can do is show up in the way that you show up and maybe that person will, will see something new, right? You just, you just never know. And I think focusing on systems, I mean, I have to say, um, the students that I taught, graduate students who are also teachers and leaders in K to 12, a lot of what resonated with them was thinking about systems. Instead of worrying so much on the outcomes of something, they they loved the idea of noticing systems that are in place, whether it's personal, like your personal systems of doing, and also at a classroom and a team and an organizational level, like taking note because they... I think what resonates, and I think this can be linked to belonging and self-worth, is the focus on the system is not just so we can dismantle the systems we don't like, which we'd all like to do. What it also does, S, is I think it takes the burden off of the person, right? Now you're not making it personal. You're not. And so you're not imposing on their feeling of belonging and their feeling of self-worth. There's a system at play that we are all responsible for and a part of, right? And so, yeah. And so I think perhaps that's why, I mean, look, and they're, like I said, they're all K to 12 teachers. So I think this idea of thinking about a system versus them 
solely having to do something made them feel, I think it's a way in a way, I think it empowers people, right. To like, just pay attention. I'm not like, it's like you and I have talked about this. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sort of rambling. We're not asking you to make a change today. The only thing I'm asking you to do is pay attention to the systems, like what's working for you, like what in that system is going well for you and what in that system seems to create a barrier, right? And what could you do in that system to get around that barrier, to get rid of that barrier? So it's like a, it's a very different way of talking to one another, right? And that engages, I mean, the power of reflection, right? You to reflect is that, that is the, you can't get to the problem solving part. You can't get to the issue without that, without yeah. that light that comes by reflecting, by asking those questions and, yeah. and, and that alone, right. I think I mentioned, I don't know if I'd mentioned this quote before, but I, I think I mentioned women who run with the wolves, but I remember I'm going to botch it as I do with quotes that I don't have fully memorized, but there is some, there's a line early on in that book about how just um, by bringing light to a situation, it will immediately without you doing anything else, begin to dehydrate it. Mm. I love that. I, I, I mean, too. Mm, I love so that paired with, and I, I mean, you just articulated, you put a framework for me, something in place after sitting through more PDs than I could count. Um, that is, I think one of the massive problems is that it is personally focused on what you could do better instead of asking people who are already doing a lot and doing really well to engage in how the system can improve. And that simple shift, man, that would change that you should, Send that out to all people <laughs> in the world. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, the thing is, and I think this is the this is the problem that I'm seeing. This is the challenge I'm seeing with PDs and strategies and doing instead of being right. S is that the reality is, and you said it earlier, one PD does not change this thing that's been brewing in me for 50 years, like, right. Like it's just not going to happen. And so why are you wasting our time trying to change me when we could be changing for the next generation of teachers? And that sounds lofty and maybe it is, but like, so what, like, let's have a deeper, more important, not important, deeper, richer conversation and ask better questions. Like stop asking me what I'm doing today, what are we doing? Right. Like that, that's sort of how I'm feeling these days is that these, these one-offs like just don't work. I mean, my coach said to me, and I so appreciated this. So like, I'm, I'm trying to decide whether or not I'm going to train for some sort of race in the fall. And I'm, I would have been considered an angel in school S because (laughs) I was a rule follower. I am compliant. So my coach runs the risk of giving me a training schedule and I follow it to a T. And when I don't, I am in conditional self-worth because I'm like, you failed. Mm -hmm. And what she said to me, and I totally believe this is one day off your schedule does not success make. So like, right. It's the system. Mm -hmm. So like changing one teacher in a PD that's lovely for that group of 20 or 30 students, but it's not, it's not emblematic of what we're trying to do. Right. If that makes any sense. So I just, I you don't better know. Have it's just... The most phenomenal PD that's ever been made. If you're even <laughs> going to do that, I think, yeah. that, I mean, that I, to your point and, and when you, the model you suggest, right. 
PDs are so destructive sometimes. Not then there are some good PDs. I'm not yes. trying to, but yeah. but there, I mean I've run PDs, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I I'm S's calling, are very good. <laughs> I I I have many things I needed to learn from them. Yeah, me too. But All of us. Of, even some of how you're framing it, right? Um, I was probably following a model that I was given and trying to adjust it as best I could. Yeah based on my dissatisfaction with so many, but sometimes you have to throw the model out entirely, which is really hard when I am also a recovering angel. So um, (laughs) the um, anyway, but I, you know, one of the dangers of those PDs, I think is that you've got a room full of professionals who are, they are overworked. They're exhausted. They have more to do than there are hours in the day. They are, they, they know what they are doing they have a history of sitting through things that don't serve them or they feel condescended to mm-hmm. and that they have to comply. And here they are. It's like the hardest audience on the planet. <laughs> and then you, you present them something that is not going to necessarily, maybe it's good information, maybe it's useful information, but it's not going to do that work to move that needle because that's al- almost an impossible task. And then they leave feeling more exhausted, more tired, less seen, less valued, because they've been made to do this thing that has taken from what they really need, right? And so moving into that model where you're you're talking about having these better conversations, where you're talking about the system where everybody can engage their voice and bring their expertise to it, creates that bigger sense of belonging, creates a better culture. I mean, all of it ripples in one direction or another. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even, you know, just I think to put an additional idea on this, even if you and I attended a PD that was fantastic, if we're not having conversations about the system, it's not going to last very long. Right. It's just not. Because if you go to James Clear's work, Atomic Habits, and look at habits, practices, routines, and systems, right? If we're not talking about that system, that's not going to form good habits. They're not going to be reinforced by the factors that are in the system. So, so whether we're talking about high quality PD or low quality PD, these one-offs just aren't going to cut it. We need to be having these larger conversations about what do we want to see in our school building and how do our systems in place support it or not, or do a little bit. Right. And I feel like what I find really interesting S is, you know, we started this conversation talking about this idea of conditional self-worth and self-worth being in, well, not conditional, but in your self-worth. And so what I'm seeing in my mind, because I like to visualize things, is this, I don't know if it's a continuum, a map or whatever, but like it's, you're in your self-worth or you're in conditional self-worth. And so what if we spent time when we're noticing those feelings of conditional self-worth, what if we just noticed what popped up in our system that triggered that conditional self-worth? What shifted us from a sense of being in our self-worth to it being conditioned on some outcome? Um, I was on my Peloton bike yesterday and Christine Dercole, who I, I adore, who she was so uh, gracious to come on my podcast, uh, our podcast a couple of years ago. She talked yesterday um, about, 
she always talks about numbers, how like numbers don't know you, right? So like whether it's it's the metrics on your bike or the scale, not to focus on those, to focus on how you're feeling. And she said, how many, she because she had people, she happened to have people in the studio and she said, how many of you get on the scale multiple times during the day, right? And a couple of people raised, several people raised their hands. And she said, well, what happens to the scale throughout the day? It fluctuates. So imagine if your conditional self-worth is contingent upon the whims of that scale, how awful for us. I mean, I, and I say this from personal experience and I can right now sitting with you say that is a terrible way to live. That is such a hard way to live. Right. It's the, it's the worst because we want right to be, we want to be in that electric, robust, full, yeah. joyful, grounded spot and not to be, I, it, I mean, that it, that makes me think of, and it, there's something about that. Um, the, I have many friends who just won't, they're like, I can't have a scale in my house. Like that's I don't very, have one. It's like, I cannot do that yeah, because it's, it's going to do things that are, and I think about that feeling that the body image stuff is it's almost a paranoia or it's almost a, right. It's it borders on total awareness, right? Like to constantly be tracking something that has to mm-hmm. do with that or conscious of something that you don't feel good about is yep. you can it's imagine exhausting. If, it's exhausted. <laughs> if you translated that to a physical ailment of some kind, mm-hmm. it's just, it, I think about that as, cause I, I have, I, and that'll go up and down for me, but when I'm in a hard spot with body image, if that were, if that were something hurting on my body, it would be constant all day. Right. It's just, it's a terrible yeah. way to live. Yeah. Yeah. Where and, I- and, you know, people who hear these stories and, and don't have a sense of what it is to struggle with body image. Um, let me just offer to anyone out there who is hypersensitive to their grades, mm-hmm. hypersensitive to feedback hypersensitive to people being on time or not being on time. Like this isn't just about numbers on a scale. This is about how we accept and invite and react to feedback. Do you work in an environment or live in a house where you're constantly worried about messing up? Like talk about, right? Right. Work. I mean, I had a girlfriend who was working for a boss who just, could rarely be made happy, was mercurial about everything. And she just, it was her, the stress, right? It was yep. constant. She At home, she was worried about what she was doing. And absolutely. And I really, I think too, you know, we are one of the things about self-worth that's a beautiful mirror and um, maybe insidious too, is that we will, we, we can look to the places in our life where where we may be in conditional self-worth, where we are accepting behavior that is not great because we won't stay in relationship to something where we don't have, where we're we're in our self-worth, where our self-worth is not conditional. If I know my value um, in relationship to my work, I'm not going to work for a boss, right? And I know that's easier said than you can't just go quit your job, right? But but at a certain point, I will make moves to leave that dynamic into a dynamic that because I know in these areas of my life where I'm, where I deserve to be valued, seen, recognized, and treated with a sense of equality, um, it's in the areas of my life that I am, 
I'm still looking outside for that validation that I will accept validation that, or, or not validation. Right. And I will keep trying to prove why I should get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, again, for folks who are listening, unless, you know, you have mastered the art of Mm non-attachment, which is really that Buddhist principle around you, you, you see something in your mind's eye or in your heart or in your feelings and it comes, it visits and it leaves and you don't really have a reaction to it other than noticing unless you've, and I only know probably maybe one person I can think, two people maybe I can think of in my head that have done, who do this very well. Um, you are struggling with conditional self-worth like we all are. It's, I mean, sometimes I have to say, I know we're getting short on time as sometimes I have to say in my, at my age, I, I think to myself, why is it taking me, has it taken me so long to get to this realization if only I had known? And then I stop myself because I think this is part of the journey. It's like, like we have to stop beating ourselves up for the shoulds, right? Like there's no should about when I should have realized this, this about my body and and the work that I do. It's, it's just part of the journey. And so <clears throat> I think for, I'm trying to think of like the accountability between now and our next podcast as I'm, I'm, I think we should invite individuals to just continue to notice and now notice not just when you're in your self-worth notice when you have even just a subtle shift away from being in your self-worth and when you notice that notice the sensation and notice what was different what was different in your personal system in the larger system something showed up or happened that took you out of your self-worth. Um, the last thing I want to say as, and maybe we'll get to this last time next time, because I just want to be really clear is we've been talking about embodiment and the importance of paying attention to our body. And one thing that Hillary McBride mentions about systems, and I just want to acknowledge this because I, I identify as a gay white female. I present as white. So I have lots and lots of privilege and I understand that in, especially in this country, really around the world. Um, and Sonia Renee Taylor has written a beautiful book about body um, that there are lots of bodies in this world that are treated as objects and that there's a lot of hatred and discrimination around race, gender, sexuality, size, shape, and age that has everything to do with body. So if you only care about the topic of embodiment for that reason, <laughs> that would be a worthwhile reason. Um, so I just like to say that, that I know this work is not easy. And I also know that the system makes it terribly difficult for particular human beings in particular bodies to find their, um, to live in their self-worth. So I just, I just felt that it was important to say that before we conclude. It's such an important, it's an beautifully said and such an important important note to make and there could be a whole other yeah it could definitely Um, but if you haven't if you haven't read sonia renee taylor's book the body is not an apology it literally um in my body and in my mind in my in my skull was mind-blowing 
um, just super, super powerful all about that sort of topic. So, um, yeah, any, I don't know. This was so fun as I, I never, I'm never quite sure where we're going to go. I always know we're going to have a great journey. Um, anything to add before we conclude? Um, I had a great time. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right, everybody. Well, this has been another episode of Tell Me This. S, we still need to come up with a catchy title for this uh, series of podcast episodes we're doing. For now, we'll just keep talking about self-worth and belonging. And I'm thinking we'll do maybe one more episode with just S and me. And then I'm thinking we should maybe invite a couple of guests on to talk about these topics. I think it'd be fun to get some other points of view on this. What do you think? Absolutely. All right, everybody. Be well and take care of yourselves and we'll be back so soon. Sincere, under the glaciers your last to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.